Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Axis, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Julio Macat, a prolific cinematographer whose credits include Home Alone, Home Alone 2, and Ace Ventura Pet Detective. In our episode, we cover a wide range of topics, starting with an in-depth discussion on Home Alone, Julio's first feature experience as a cinematographer. We discuss stories from production, how they shot the house stunts discovering comedy through camera framing and by playing music on set. Also, his first meeting with Jim Carrey on Ace Ventura Pet Detective, shooting multicam on movies like Wedding Crashers, and his upcoming project After the Wedding, starring Julianne Moore and Michelle Williams which premiered at Sundance and will be released in theaters this August. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here and talking to you. We're going to be talking about a bunch of different projects, but I also wanted to try and analyze each one specifically for different elements that you sure, know they could pleasure. offer. We could start from the beginning and talking about receiving a screenplay. And as you go through, assuming you've attached yourself to the project, trying to approach the scenes and starting on your own terms to create in your mind's eye what the approach to it could be. You had this to say, quote, I like to think of myself as someone photographing scenes like a writer. Whenever I read a scene, I try to figure out the three points that are the most important. If it's a comedy, that's where the joke is. And then, like a writer, I try and translate photographically to make sure that what's on the page comes across. You'd be amazed to realize just how reading a script can sometimes tell you everything you need to do. So I'm curious, when you do receive a screenplay, what is your process like in regards to annotating and uh, coming up with ideas? I have sort of a, a rule of thumb of why I do a project, and it's a sort of a triangle. I look at the script as the most important, then the people involved, and third, the reality of the money. <laughs> you know, when you're making a career out of out of it, uh, you have to balance all three things. And I try not to do a project unless I get at least two out of those three elements. If I've been working, so the money is not a huge issue, and if the people seem nice, then if the script is good, then it's gravy. But the script really drives it, because even though there may be really nice people and the money is really good, oftentimes, you know, the script just doesn't make sense. And I don't find something that I can contribute to it, you know, to elevate it and take whatever's on the page and enhance it with visuals. Oftentimes I've turned down projects because I just don't get it. I don't get what I would be able to do in order to elevate it. And oftentimes you get very excited because you read something that either travels to an interesting place that you can photograph and make it a great setting, or it has really good actors who you know you want to try to capture in the best way you can, or it has a dynamic sense to it that you, you can join the camera to the story by taking the audience on this thrill ride. So once I see what I can do, then I think about it, I read it again. Caleb Deschanel once told me that you need to read a script at least seven times in order to really feel like you know it, and that each time you pick up another layer of creativity of something that you can do to it. Once I do, 
then you meet with the director and sometimes producers as well. And then you hope that these ideas that you've come up with, that you have, that you're going to pitch is the way, I say jokingly, that the, the sentence that has fired more cameramen than any other is, well, the way I see it. <laughs> <laughs> so I try not to do that, but I try to say one way to see the story is like this. And then you pitch how you've envisioned what you've read, and uh, you show pictures of reference because, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. And then you go, it can, it can go in this direction, have something that could relate to the scene or captures the feeling of the scene. And hopefully the director likes your take on it. And usually what happens is if they do like your take on it and they also appreciate some of the work you've done in the past, then you get the job. You have to have a little experience to know that for the X amount of money that they have to make the movie and for all these wonderful ideas that you know the director may want to do or the producers may want to do, you also have to be realistic and know that 20 days is not going to be enough to accomplish everything that you want to do here. There are probably ways of backing into 20 days, but... That's another time where you say, I, I personally can't do it or won't do something where I have to compromise so much that I have to back into the schedule, and I've turned down many jobs for that reason. So yeah, you have to be smart enough to know the right way to do the film and the economical way to do the film, the low-budget, bare-bones way of doing the film, which you get to. And then if after that it's just like really ridiculous that you know you have a huge cast, you have a 115-page script, and you have 20 days to shoot it, it just, you know... If it wouldn't do it justice. It wouldn't. It, it would, you would end up doing something that you wouldn't be proud of. In that case, I opt not to do it. But sometimes, you know, it's a great challenge. And I've done 20-day movies that were a great challenge. For example, there was a little movie called Syrup I did with a young director. He, I think at the time he was 25 years old and a friend of my daughter's and really wanted to do this thing. I looked at the script and it was it had a lot of dynamic movement to it. I said to him, look, I will help you with this and I will shoot this for you, but we have to shoot the whole thing off the Steadicam. You can't go crazy with coverage because there's no time. And every shot has to be moving except for six shots. And you get to pick those six shots and they better be fucking good. You know, because they're going to be very important because the camera is going to stop for a reason. And people will feel it. Yeah. So I sort of challenged him. I said, if you want to do it that way, I'll do it with you. And he totally agreed. So we did it. We we went to New York and we shot this continuous movement thing and created coverage within the scene, you know, so that a master turned into close-ups, turned into master again. And we did one shot that was uh, five and a half city blocks long in New York, you know, going with the traffic and, and, you know, walking down the sidewalk and stuff and doing 360s around people as they were stopped to wait for the light. And we shot a pretty cool little movie for a million six. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I mean, we'll talk about Spielberg in a moment because you do reference him. 
when we talk about Home Alone, but I think it's that's very interesting to me, which is something I've personally picked up from from him, is not being afraid of combining shots, you know, going from a two shots or close up back to an insert. And, you know, filmmakers who sometimes shy away, not only because of the technical difficulties, but thinking that it necessarily calls attention to itself, which sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But I think it's a very smart way of, of keeping things going, as you're saying. Yeah, and, and if you've dissected the scene, then you know that there are these key elements to the scene that you really want to convey to the audience. What's wrong with designing a master that enhances those points? I've done now 16 movies with first-time directors, and one of my favorite things is, is to the director will come on the day, and we, we will have talked about the scene, and we know the location, and we've sort of gotten our feet wet with how the scene might come together. And then your actors come, and then they run it. And when that happens, there's a whole other dynamic and magic that happens when the actors bring the story to life. And, you know, things happen that you never thought about before or that you never saw in the script, and a good director will recognize those things. And, um, you know, the director will say, I've made a shot list. We have 15 shots on the list for the scene. And meanwhile, we have, you know, an hour and a half to shoot it. And I know that we're never going to make 15 shots, you know, on our schedule. And But I say, okay, great, great. Yeah, these are all good shots, wonderful. And then I ask a question. But let me ask you this. If you had to shoot this whole scene in one shot, in one shot only, where do you think the camera would go? And they look at me like I'm insane, you know? And I would say three quarters of the time, that ends up being your master shot. You know, where the camera would go and where the camera would move to during the master or during the main shot that enhances the points that are important on the scene. You have to think like an editor. You're a better cinematographer if you're thinking in terms of cuts and, and edits and what not to leave the scene without taking with you because that's what drives a story and that's what's important. And there's compromises at every turn. Uh, no matter how big the film is, you know, how big the budget is, there's always a compromise. You, you run out of daylight, you run out of time with actors, you've spent too much time in another scene, and, and then you have to come back and figure out how to do the expedited version of the scene because, you know, you don't have this actor anymore, they're leaving and never coming back yet you have a whole other scene to shoot. And the other scene was much more important to the director, so he spent most of the time on that scene. So you have to be on your toes and just remember what's important in the scene and go for those things. It's interesting because as I was rewatching this footage and, and in a world now of always, you know, traditional coverage, what I think this technique does, it reminds me a lot of Buster Keaton and the understanding that to create comedy through framing, sometimes getting action and reaction in the same shot Absolutely. is the funniest thing. Absolutely. That was really big in, in, in our mindset when we were doing Home Alone and uh, making sure that, you know, there was a witness to the gag and a, a reaction to it or an opposite reaction from a couple of the characters within the scene that, that made it funny. And, and yeah, big, big wide frames that see things coming and sees, you know, the audience gets to see the gags about to happen are very funny. They're much funnier than closer shots, that's for sure. Then let's jump into Home Alone, which again, 1990, it's your, from my understanding, it's your first feature as cinematographer, which is 
So impressive. And just to go in order, I was curious to ask you about taking on the challenge of that film as a first-time cinematographer, at least on a feature level, and you had this to say, quote, on Home Alone, I was scared shitless. <laughs> yes. I thought any day they're going to find out that I haven't done a movie. <laughs> It was a small $13 million film, and Chris Columbus's vision was to make the story all about Kevin McAllister's world as a kid and his imagination. So I was curious to ask you what was your biggest fear going into it and what allowed you to overcome the fear as the shooting was going on? Yeah, my biggest fear was I, I knew that the reasons I might be fired would be that I don't make the days, that I don't you know, complete the work in one day because I've met, I spent too much time futzing around with one thing. And that the footage that was being filmed wasn't working, you know, that it wasn't cutting together, that it wasn't going to be funny. Those were my two big things. I knew how to light scenes, you know, I felt confident about that. I'd done enough commercials, enough music videos and all that, that I knew how stuff will go together nicely. But I was afraid of executives, you know, sitting like the old days. You know, the executives of the studio would sit in a screening room, watch all the dailies of all the movies that are being done at the studio, and then have comments for the director. And, you know, I'm talking about the 70s, 80s before, and when we were shooting film, many DPs would be fired if the executives didn't think that they were doing a job that was what they thought the movie was going to be. So our Bible for Home Alone with Chris was to do something that was going to be fun for kids. We kept looking at A Christmas Story as an example of a fun, entertaining movie that's a little quirky and a little wild, and and has some over-the-top comedy that could work. And, and we kept talking about, you know, okay, this whole world through a little kid's eyes, how do we do that? I, I ended up in prep. I spent a lot of time on my knees to see the world from a lower perspective. And I kept thinking about wide-angle lenses because you know how when you, when you go back to the house you were raised in and you go to the room and everything just seems so small, right? So the reverse of that, when you're a little kid, Everything just seems so big. With that idea, and lenses like a 16-millimeter, 14-millimeter, lower angles, you know, so, so the lines of perspective would be changed, and then the dynamic of something coming towards the lens in a wide-angle lens is, is so effective. This was sort of our world. We carried it on to the lighting, too. It's subtle things, but, for example, the practical lamps in the house were always a little bit brighter than they should be. Everything was enhanced because in a kid's memory, everything is bigger, brighter. Well, the very first day of filming was the movie within the movie. But I convinced the director to shoot it in black and white with slow stock. I think it was 100 ASA stock so that we could recreate, you know, those great gangster movies of the 40s, you know, the Cagney movies. I, I remember the set was so hot because, you know, I had these 10Ks and I had like five of them pounding light into, you know, going through the windows and make, trying to make shafts of light. And then we, we gave it a little bit of, of a warm tone so it had a little patina to it so it felt old-fashioned. It's me, Snakes. I got the stuff. Leave it on that doorstep and get the hell out of here. All right, Johnny. But what about my money? What money? How much do I owe you? AC said 10%. I tell you what I'm gonna give you, Snakes. 
I'm going to give you to the count of 10 to get your ugly, yellow, no good keister off my property before I pump your guts full of lead. All right, Johnny, I'm sorry. One, two, ten. <laughs> Keep the change, you filthy animal. But the point was that, that the very first day of filming, we did something like 40 shots because I didn't want to get fired. And there was a blizzard going on outside. It was, it was the scene in the uh, pharmacy where where the, the old man puts his hand and it's been cut and you see it. I had shots from underneath with split diopter so that the, the hand was in focus and the old man was ominous looking. And there was a lot of dialogue, a lot of cuts, you know, close on the feet stepping down, close on the bell ringing, you know, all these things that we wanted to get. And I was really happy that I got all the shots that day. It was a, a great way to start and it kind of set the bar and set the pace for the way we were gonna do the rest of the movie. Allow me to ask you about shooting the stunts, because you've talked about this amazing idea of shooting wide and shooting close. Again, we were talking about before we began about your experience shooting second unit on Tango and Cash, so stunts go hand in hand. Yeah. Quote, I was so afraid to miss the stunt gags that I began placing a third wide angle bonus cam as a fallback to the two primary camera angles. In watching dailies, we soon realized that the shots that evoked the best reactions were actually the one shot with bonus cam. So could you talk to me a little bit about shooting the stunt sequences? We did a lot of things in camera too. Right. For example, when Pesci gets the torch on the head that was done practically and I had never done this before but John Muta the production designer pitched the idea of of shooting through a two-way piece of glass mirror so what we did is we set up a mannequin head lined it up with Pesci's head and then had real fire shooting off of the torch so that as as the trigger of the torch went off real fire would come out into our little set off to the side that lined up exactly to what we were shooting. I remember losing a stop in three quarters through that piece of glass, so that worried me a lot. And it just worked like a charm because when the, when the fire went around the black head, it went around Pesci's head as we lined it up. And that was done practically. We did a bunch of stuff practically. The spider was all practical. Daniel Stern really, really put the tarantula on his face, you know. And they had a wrangler there who supposedly was supposed to say, oh, no, no, nothing's going to happen. This tarantula, you know, is super tame. And Daniel Stern asked the wrangler, the animal wrangler, so you're telling me that, you know, the tarantula can't bite me, right? And he goes, no, I'm not telling you that. I'm saying it hasn't bit anyone yet, but it could bite you. And then he just, oh, God damn it, just give me the thing. Get, let's just do it. Roll the camera. Roll it, roll it. Grabbed the thing and went for it. Yeah, bonus cam, getting back to that, it was a discovery that something that we were doing sort of originally out of fear just to make sure that we had gotten the stunt. And it was sort of the idea of an IMO-type camera that now, you know, would be like a GoPro or... So that was always the, the overhead shot because it was the only place we could put it because, you know, there'd be boom mics and stuff around. Or it would be just off to the edge of the frame and accidentally it happened that Pesci, for example, would, would fall on the ground and, and his face would be right next to bonus cam. And then all of a sudden it was really funny. So bonus cam became sort of the hero 
And then we really started to think, oh, what else can we do at bonus camp? This is really cool. You know, let's tie it to a rope and, you know, throw it down the chute and have it be the point of view of the iron. Let's just put it on the edge of frame and then when someone falls, pull it out at the last second. We experimented with it and it was usually with a 14 millimeter lens and uh, we got a lot of great stuff out of it. And a style of sorts developed because of that, you know, to where the big, wide, immersive camera that was right in there, but it was big, wide angle, it became funny. It was uh, stylistically, we stumbled onto something and then we just went with it. Merry Christmas, little fella. We know that you're in there and that you're all alone. It's Santa Claus <laughs> and it's Elf. Be a good little fella now and open the door. What? I wanted to ask you a little bit about how camera movement and music can work together. This is also something you talked about. Quote, if you listen to music while you're operating, the product of your camera work is completely different than if you don't. We play lots of music on the set of Home Alone, which helped get the timing down. I started out shooting concerts and music videos, as you mentioned, and had always been thinking musically. I'm simply aware of how camera movement would map to a musical score, and it makes a huge difference in the final piece. When I watch accomplished camera operators, it's always obvious which of them have a musical background." Close quote. So I'm curious to ask you if there are different examples of how the pace of music specifically can help camera movement, a dolly, a pan, whatever it is. Oh, absolutely. I Well, I knew about filmmakers like Alan Rudolph, who swear by having music on a set to reflect what he's feeling you know, as the theme of the scene. And even though this was comedic, there were a lot of heartfelt moments in Home Alone that, you know, and I'll tell you how inexperienced I was, <laughs> okay? I didn't know who John Williams was, okay? So at one point, I was so into, like, this thing of, no, we have to shoot stuff that works with music, you know? So I called John Williams, not knowing who he was, and I said, listen, I'm the cameraman, I'm thinking, and let me tell you what we're doing, because, you know, it'd be really nice when you're scoring this movie that you keep this in mind, <laughs> not knowing that he was Spielberg's guy. And, you know, and, and, and he was really nice to me. He says, oh, good, good, thanks for telling me, you know, and, and you know, referencing some of the things that, that I, 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 we had listened to, you know, in, in the touching moments. Uh, and uh, he, he kind of thought it was funny that, you know, I was so green and idealistic. But the truth was that it's absolutely true. As you move the camera, you move it differently when there's music and when there's no music. And I had done enough music to to sort of have internal themes, you know, that this moment feels more like this sort of speed of a pan. One particular scene that got cut out of the movie where he's sitting at the end of a hallway and the camera's slowly drifting back and he feels very alone. As much as possible, you know, you, you can't do it on everything because you're running and, and gunning and working really quickly. But we did enough of it to correlate music to the scene. I guarantee you, it helps everybody. It helps everybody on the set. This is why Alan Rudolph did it all the time, because it helps the actors. It helps the movement of the camera, the dolly grip. Even the way that you pull focus, you know, it, it just has a different feeling when you're, if you're racking focus back to a slow beat, 
maybe you go a little slower, you know, on your racking focus. It just makes a huge difference. It, it doesn't make sense to me why, if in the end you're going to be scoring music to the visuals, why you wouldn't have some music in mind to your visuals prior. My last question to you in regards to Home Alone is this concept of allowing yourself to, quote, steal from the best. And that reflects, especially in the church scene where Kevin meets his old neighbor and, and they have a chat. There's this uh, great camera movement about that. He had to say, quote, I wanted to rip Spielberg off on the rise camera movement as Kevin steps into the church. Classic Spielberg wide shot, a character walks away and then you rise. Always steal from the best, close quote. I think that's something that is very important and not talked about is, is the relationship that you have with the cinematography work that has inspired you in the past that you've studied and I'm curious to ask you how then uh, whether it's consciously or subconsciously it then finds itself as you reintroduce it in your work yeah well here's the thing the beauty is that it's hard to do anything exactly the same way that someone else has done it. Sometimes we have to reshoot, shoot again, I should say, not reshoot. But you have to come back to a location and shoot another shot to match things perfectly. It's really hard for us to match ourselves exactly the same way. And that's sort of the beauty of being a cinematographer is no matter how much you try to imitate someone else. Like, I, I love Roger Deakins' work. You know, he inspires me and how he moves the camera. But as much as I would try to honor his work, I can never match what he does. And just like I couldn't match what Janusz Kaminski did on, on many of the Spielberg movies, Jerry Maguire is a fantastic film where everything works. And yet if I set off to shoot something like that, it would be different just by nature. So it's, it's sort of an homage. Every time you do something that feels like somebody else, it's still your own shot. You can't help but have picked an angle that's slightly different, raising the camera up slightly at a different time. And every situation is unique. But having seen it and appreciated it, it helps you to do your version of it. I think pretty much every every story has been retold again. The interesting thing about Home Alone was that, that all the parts came together in a really strong way. And I still, as much as I've studied it and looked at it and tried to figure out what it was, it was a, a convergence. It's like the stars all lined up. You, know, you had this great script. You had great performances. You know, we photographed it well then it was edited really well then john williams comes in and puts this amazing music to it so it was like an all-star team of people probably at their peak in different ways except for me i was a young guy <laughs> and you never know if it's going to be great or if it's going to be fantastic excellent you're just hoping that it will be something that comes together and oftentimes when it does then it's the magic it's the magic of making movies I wanted to ask you really briefly about Ace Ventura Pet Detective. <laughs> it was shot between May and July of 93 in Florida. And I'm curious to ask you a little bit about working not only with Tom Shadiak, who yeah. from my understanding was a first time director at he the time, was, yeah. but obviously with Jim Carrey, who seems like the kind of guy that 
can really go off on a tangent in regards to improv. Beyond just ad-libbing and, and changing lines up, if you have a performer who's so physical, and I, I'm assuming, I wasn't there, yeah. but may start moving around not in the way you had blocked. Oh, absolutely. How do you try and work to capture that? Yeah, you hover. Okay, I got to tell you how I met Jim Carrey, because this is awesome. So Tom Shadyak, the director, says, you know, I want you to come meet Jim. We're going to go to his hotel room. I say, great, great. So we go over to his room, knock on the door. Jim Carrey opens the door. He's buck naked. <laughs> okay. So, and that that's how we met. Okay, that was, And from that moment on, whether he was trying to test out and see if we had a sense of humor or who he was dealing with or whatever. We we all just embarked on this. And I got to tell you, I thought we were making the biggest piece of shit ever made. We thought, oh, this is so over the top. This is so crazy that people are going to think this is the biggest load of crap ever filmed. Right. And, you know, and I came in with all these ideas. Oh, no, at the beginning, we're going to do this speed ramp, changing the speed of the camera, changing the aperture of the lens, you know, old style, crazy stuff with with the footsteps coming. And then he's kicking the package. He's catching bullets with his teeth. We just thought this this is the biggest crock of shit ever. But we went for it. You know, we, we said, you can't do this halfway. You got to commit. It's either, it, you have to commit, and it has to be craziness, and people will either love it or hate it. Right. And, and I took it seriously. Like every other comedy, I tried to ground the serious moments that they felt more scary, and, and then the farce ensued. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. I know there's a lot riding on it, but it's all psychological. Just got to stay in a positive frame of mind. I'm going to execute a button hook pattern super slow mo. Let's see that in an instant replay. Your brother won't be the first professional football player we've treated. Is that right? Yes, we're very sensitive to the emotional stress that athletes have to endure. I'm open! I'm open! I'm open! We'll have to do some preliminary evaluations, but I think your brother will fit in nicely here. Over here! So... I don't know what I can tell you about it other than Jim Carrey was coming off of In Living Color and sort of well-known, but we knew that when we shot some of the scenes with some crowds and he came out, he was recognized, and and we thought that he could have a following, and, and he did. That year you had, well, you had Is Ventura and, and, from my understanding, The Mask and uh, Dumb yeah. and Dumber in the same year. So it yeah, was, yeah. It was a hell of a year. I mean, what what I just thought was interesting about that, there's uh, the scene in the mental institution where he's <laughs> wearing the tutu and he's jumping over bushes and all of that. When you're shooting comedy and especially when you have performers who sometimes are asked and sometimes demand to do more and more and try different things, does that affect your shooting ratio in any way? If you're budgeted for X amount of feet and suddenly you're asking to do take number 26 where you do it different? Yeah, yeah, you have to be open to that. You know, it's proven time and again that you have to arrive at something that's really funny. Classic example was uh, Wedding Crashers. 
you know, where we would start on, you know, four lines and then we roll out 11 minutes of film, you know, in the scene, for example, when they're on the stairs and they're talking about the breasts and, you know, and, and Vince Vaughn asks, you know, well, did you see her tits? Did you see her tits? Did you, see, did you motorboat? You know, you motorboat in son of a bitch, you know, that whole thing. I remember rolling the camera and running out of film twice, meaning that we shot improv and to get there, to get that good stuff, you know, we shot 22 minutes of film. You've been so good to me, you know you make me want to Well, Wedding Crashers was actually going to be the next project I was going to ask you about, and specifically as we enter the concept of, of shooting multicam, you know, trying yeah. to capture comedy in camera. And in this case, specifically, I wanted to try and tie it back to the concept of lighting as well and how it yeah. can have an impact. Quote, Wedding Crashers taught me how to shoot three cameras at once when you're doing a two-shot frontal and two overs on each character, and you're trying to maintain some dignity in the world of lighting. It's yeah. not easy. Sometimes you compromise, perhaps, with a longer lens on which you'd like to be but the beauty is that much like a documentary in comedy actors talk over each other and you want to be ready to capture that over time i started getting directors comfortable with shooting three cameras close quote so what are some of the pros and cons in regards to shooting multi-cam let's talk about a three camera setup right now going again from home alone where perhaps you try and craft an image single cam and going to three cameras and trying to still have a great image yeah we, we didn't do that many multiple cameras on home alone except for the stunts you know covering some thing with three cameras at the same time you finesse the three-point lighting thing to where one light on one side is a backlight on one person it's the key light on the other person so you need some good grips to be able to feather that light off of the so that it's not too much backlight but strong enough to be the key light for one person and vice versa. So it's very tricky to do it to where it's still presentable. It's not ideal. A lot of cameramen hate it. And I hate it too because oftentimes you don't have the resources where you're shooting it to be able to get to those spots, you know, and if you're outside especially, it's much easier to do in a controlled stage because the lights are, are hanging and you can lower them just to the edge of frame and then you can cut, you have control over those lights. And like a lot of three camera sitcoms that are shot that look pretty good, that's the best approach on, on the three point lighting. We don't like it, but it does gain you the overlap. Yeah. Imagine how hard it is to cut on dialogue if, you know, especially on comedy where things change and reactions will change to the new lines. So it's almost impossible to then go back. You shot coverage on, on Vince Vaughn and then Owen comes up with all these new lines with new reactions to the lines. You can't go back and shoot as close up again to the reaction, which I have done several times because great stuff comes up and then you don't have the reactions to go with it. So by doing this with three cameras, you you gain that. You lose finessing the lighting, but it still can be pretty good if you're good. And you gain the overlap of the dialogue and you gain reactions that are 
at the moment, you know. And, 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 and probably you get through shooting scenes a lot faster. Yeah. You mentioned working with your grips, and as we talk about your collaboration with your crew, as I was listening, it sounds like there's so much, the, the key word is respect. Absolutely. I think especially if we talk about a lot of comedies, we mentioned a few, but there are a lot more. You worked with Wahlberg and Will Ferrell, and the generous approach that you can have as, as a cinematographer to try and keep the lighting setups short time as you're switching them around because it's about keeping the momentum going. Absolutely. So. We try in comedy, very important because, you know, the worst thing to do, and, and Mark Wahlberg was very appreciative to me for moving quickly. Because, on Daddy's Home. On Daddy's Home, yeah, on both of them, especially the second one, because you, you get in a groove and, and then you want to do the scene and then you don't want to go back to your trailer and spend 45 minutes in the trailer and come back again. So by lighting in about 20 minutes and telling him, you know, just toss a football around for a while and we'll we'll be ready. He would ask me, how long will it take? And he was amazed that in 20 minutes we were doing big turnarounds and shooting the, the other side. So trying to anticipate that things are going to change a little bit. So you don't put yourself into a corner where things are just on the edge of frame, you know, because inevitably someone's going to go further something's going to happen oh this cool thing's going to happen and all of a sudden you know you're paying the camera you know another 30 degrees to the left so thinking ahead that way that this could happen and that's experience too and and just having a light set there just in case that that happens then we've got that corner lit and it's ready to go. And I would say it as we're blocking the scene, I would say, you know, don't feel that you're restricted to this stuff. We have some latitude here. If you want to go a little further or whatever, go for it. My edge of frame is there and there, so go at it. And they're appreciative of that. Yeah, we had a great experience with John Lithgow, also an amazing comedian on Daddy's Home 2, and Mel Gibson, you know, doing the tough guy thing. And Will Ferrell is one of the nicest people in the world who I adore, and I think he's one of the funniest people in the world, too. It's just, he can do no wrong in my book. We're back with more daddies. Look who's here! Tell the pop joke! Why does a duck have feathers? Why? To cover up his butt quack. <laughs> hey, kids, I got a good one for you. Two dead hookers wash up on the oh, show. Oh, no, no, no. no, no, no. Shut up. We have talked a lot about camera placement and camera movement, but I would like to go deeper in regards to not only lighting, but the emotional role of color. Because I think there is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there is an expectation from audiences and maybe studios of what a comedy should look like in regards to often being bright. And I am all the more impressed and happy when I study your work and I see that you allow yourself not only to have very high contrast images, but also get stylized with color. About lighting, you had this to say, quote, it took me eight years to figure out lighting, a blend of being around film sets while also observing just how natural lighting falls on people. The answers are already there for you to copy, close quote. What what do you think about this in regards to comedies supposedly being bright and how do you allow yourself as you go on in your career to try and have a different looking images throughout a picture, for example? Well, I try not to treat a comedy like it's anything different than a dramatic movie with funny scenes in it, you know? Good photography is good photography. Rich colors are rich colors. That, that works. It evokes an emotion, you know? If you have a white light in the background, you have one emotion. If it's a golden yellow light that feels like a ray of sunlight and it hits the floor and it's bouncing into the room, that's a different emotion. Even in the description of it, you get the gist 
that you're going to react to it differently. And sometimes, you know, you can use that emotion and either go with that emotion for the rest of the lighting of the scene or go against it. You know, how ironic that it's so beautiful in the background and this person's suffering in the foreground. But good photography is good photography. A comedy should not be lit differently just because it's a comedy because somebody once said, uh, oh, no, it's funnier if it's brighter. That's bullshit. You know, it's, <laughs> Yeah, you have to see the gags, you know, you have to see what's happening and what's funny. But I am a big fan of enhance the location and do lighting that makes the set look really good because, you know, production designer and, and the art directors work so hard to make the sets look great. So if I can do something that enhances it, like put a, a, a very steep light on a piece of furniture that's just around enough to etch it, you know, and, and get a little pencil line sketch to a beautiful piece of furniture. If I can do that, why wouldn't I do that? Production designers love that about working with me because we're in it together, you know. They spend time picking things for the set that are beautiful, and you should see them. If it's a sad moment, you know, you, you tend to go towards the cooler lighting because that just feels more right, you know, like on a, a rainy day. But if it's a happier moment, you know, you go towards, you know, that Italian light that you see in Tuscany, you know, that, that's lighting the fields in the late afternoon. You know, why not? If you can do something like that on, you know, in your photography, you're an asshole if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a missed opportunity where you, where you can present something that looks beautiful. You know, sometimes seeing something lit a little brighter on an edge of frame just to make sure that, that you give a, a frame a finality to it or draw the eye to the right place in the story by making the things that you're lighting more. Draw your eye to that. And if you have a lot of foreground, don't light your foreground as much so that your eye goes to what's important. Things that are basic rules of storytelling and photography that you want to abide by. They work in comedy just like they work in drama. And it's, it's an emotional relationship, an emotional memory that I think audiences have with color and light, which is what you're talking about now, about cooler tones are warmer. And mm -hmm. specifically because most audience members don't stop to study it when they watch a movie. It's a way to access that. Yeah, and then you can also run the risk of doing what I call a fruit salad. You know, where you got, oh, this is, wouldn't it be cool if you have some red here and purple there and yellow here? And there's some DPs who do that. And I tell you that the best photography I've ever done is when I go, I watch something that I just did, and then I go and I turn off a couple of lights. It's always better. Oftentimes, less is more because, you know, you're working with separation and you're working with colors, but, but also light, dark, light, dark, how it stacks up. Layering in the Layering, frame. Layering, you know, Conrad Hall was the best ever at that of just moving the camera two feet to the right and all of a sudden everything changes because now, you know, behind the dark side of your face, you have a window that's glowing, so you're separating so you don't need a backlight. And that's good shit. Before I ask you about after the wedding, let's transition into lighting. I wanted to briefly ask you about Wreck-It Ralph. I don't know to what extent you're involved, but I think it's fascinating to see. It, not a lot of cinematographers do it, but from my understanding, Roger Deakins uh, worked with uh, DreamWorks for How to Train Your Dragon. It's a very talented team of animators and lighting artists, but it, th there must be a control for them to rely on you for, for creating authenticity and, and the lighting. What we bring to the party as cinematographers is we know real life lighting. 
animation is fabulous, but they have too many choices, you know, and there's too many buttons to push and too many shafts of light that can be created and too many colors and too much. In my experience on Wreck-It Ralph, you know, the director, we, we had met because I'd done a lighting demonstration and Disney came, the animation department came. We had a really fun time. And they drew this super cool caricature of me. It was really nice. So the director of Wreck-It Ralph asked me, to, to come in and just see some of the ideas for some of the lighting setups, and he wanted to get what I thought about it. And I said, sure, but send me a script, and let me get to know Star which was a big deal. It was Disney. They didn't want anybody to see it. So I saw the script, and then I came in with a book of maybe 50 photographs that when I imagined the scenes, this is what it felt like to me. I would open it up and say, look, wouldn't this be cool for the sequence? And what do you think about this? And they thought that was the coolest thing ever. You know, someone from the outside who had fresh eyes on the story would come in with color ideas or direction of light ideas. For example, the train station, which direction the beams of light should go and the color, how light hits off the floor, how it reacts to other parts of the set. Yeah, and they were showing me renders of okay. where they were along the way. It was something that was, you know, one half of the way done. And we liked each other a lot, so we ended up uh, doing a bunch. What's your name? Uh, Ralph. Wreck-It Ralph. You're not from here, are you? No, well, yeah. I mean, I mean not from right in this area. I'm just doing some work here. What kind of work? There's some routine candy tree trimming. Uh, you probably want to stand back. In fact, this whole area is technically closed while we're trimming. Who's we? Candy tree department. Uh. I didn't hear you. Your breath is so bad it made my ears numb. Listen, I try to be nice. I try to be nice. You're mimicking You're me. You're mimicking me. Okay. Now that. That is rude, and this conversation is over. This the last project I wanted to talk to you about is, is of course, After the Wedding. And first off, i got to thank you so much for, for sharing the movie with me. Sure. The story follows a manager of an Indian orphanage who's played by Michelle Williams, who travels to New York to meet a benefactor played by Julian Moore. It's a incredible, incredible story, and you were telling me that people can follow up maybe in a few months, but it sounds as if later in the summer or at the beginning of the fall, the movie's going to be available. So I, I, I hope people do check it out. Again, I wanted to begin by asking you about the project and how you got involved, because the same way I think actors can be typecast sometimes mm -hmm. in, in genre-specific projects, I'm sure there can be a similar thing going on for cinematographers. Absolutely. Cinematographers can be categorized for a long time, yeah, I, I was the comedy guy. Let's just face it, uh, in, in Hollywood, there's very little imagination that as, as a cinematographer, you could do two roles. You could do a comedy, you could do a drama. They like to play it safe, and they are investing a lot of money, so they want to get someone to do it who's done something similar before and not take the risk of, you know, someone coming in reinventing the wheel. And then all of a sudden the big fear that, oh no, the comedy's too dark and it's not going to be funny. So there was some of that, but Bart Freundlich, who has been a friend of mine for a long time, we worked together on a, a little film called Catch That Kid with Kristen Stewart when she was... 
15 years old. And we've known each other. He's married to Julianne Moore. He's a good friend and a great filmmaker. And we, we've always tried to keep working together and been busy many times. The timing doesn't work out, but we stayed in touch. And it was a funny story because he, he had sent me an email to an old email of mine uh, asking me if I'd be interested in reading the script and doing this with him. But I never answered him because uh, it went to an AOL email that I no longer had. So I get this phone call from Bart saying, you know, I'm going to hire this guy to do this movie. You know him, and I was wondering if you could tell me about him. You know, and I said, okay, but Bart, what about me? You know, it's just like, oh, but I sent you the email, and you didn't write me back. And I thought that you weren't interested in it. And I went, no, no, are you kidding? And the timing is perfect, and... Yeah, that other DP is a great guy, and he would do a good job, but I would do a better job, (laughs) is what I told him. So to make a long story short, we we connected. I read the script. I loved it. You know, when you have a great script like that and two amazing actors, and three, actually, Billy Crudup. Amazing. Really good actor. I I went, I got to do this with you. It was great because we had a shorthand. We had worked on that other film, and then we had prepped another film that didn't go at the very end. But when you prep a movie together, it's almost as if you've shot it because we went through so much of it. And it was a great opportunity. We, We like each other. Our wives know each other. Julianne Moore and, and my wife Elizabeth Perkins have known each other for a long time. So it was like family, you know, to get together and do this. So I went at it with uh, using a lot of my resources because it was a, a very tight budget. And I asked for a lot of favors, and we ended up shooting the film on with the Alexa 65 camera, which requires a lot more data and, and it's a lot more expensive and I had a lot of people throw in favors because they knew that this was one from the heart for me you yeah. know, and I really wanted to do this so e-film was amazing and processed all of the footage and handled the data which was massive you know twice as much as a regular Alexa camera. But it was a special story, and I wanted to try to do something special visually, try something I hadn't done before, which was this 70-millimeter format. It's very focus-selective. It's weird, but even though you get a whole lot more information with a bigger sensor, your depth of focus is, is very fine. It becomes very selective. I did some tests, and I was very surprised, but I liked the idea that I could shoot something where I could draw the attention to the actors, and the rest of the picture could become more of an impressionistic painting. And I went in that direction, so that in a big group of people at a big wedding, you know, you could really pinpoint the one person. One person. person. I was going to ask you about that. We talked a lot about lighting and framing and all these things, but... I I specifically chose to wait until now to talk about the value of operating your own camera as a cinematographer. It sometimes happens, sometimes it doesn't, but I think it makes for very controlled and very mature cinematography. Could you talk about how that has helped you all the way up until after the wedding and what that benefits you? It's a lot of work to operate the camera yourself. I think I'm a good operator mainly because I hear the music to the scene and I know how I want the camera to move. And it's hard to explain that to another operator. Not that they would be doing it wrong, they're just not doing it the way you would be doing it. And that's frustrating. 
And that's why a lot of people operate the camera themselves, like Roger, Bob Richardson. You know, there's a shorthand there <laughs> where you know what's important in the scene. You know what mistakes can happen within the shot that still makes it okay. Oftentimes, an oper- a camera operator will ask for another take because it was a little mistake within the mechanics of it. And it sends a message to the actors that, oh, well, what was wrong with that take? That, that's the take I really like. What happened? You know, this happens a lot, that an actor will go up to the operator and say, so what happened? Did, did, did the dolly get hit or what? And then it becomes tricky. What's important to a camera operator oftentimes is not as important to a cameraman, to the director of photography. Or you know what you can fix later, so it doesn't bother you. There's a, there's a little bump on the track, you know. It was emotionally, it was the the perfect push into the scene, and then you know that later you can fix that little bump in the dolly. But this was kind of a, a, such a special project for me that I I wanted the camera to reflect my heart, and I didn't want there to be anybody in between that, and I wanted to make mistakes if I felt like the mistake was right or take more chances because it's me another camera operator would not take a chance and be more drastic with an angle or be more crazy because they don't want to disappoint me it just cuts that middleman out and it it's hard because it takes you to the lens itself but it's also good because you're in the scene and I had never cried you know while operating the camera before but there was there were two instances in this movie where I could barely see through the eyepiece because my eyes were tearing up and it was just so powerful what I was watching. That was a great experience for me to operate the camera. I, I can't stress how much I love this movie and I really do hope that Good. everyone listening is going to go check it out. Yeah, in August. It's supposed to, Sony Classics is releasing it in August. Again, my last question to you regards your legacy as a cinematographer. So (laughs) next year marks the 35 years since you started as a cinematographer, even before Home Alone. I was looking through your filmography, and it looks like you worked on at least one movie every year, sometimes up to three movies at the same time. And what I see there, what I assume there is, is is passion. Mm -hmm. There's a passion for the work and a passion for the collaboration. So allow me to ask you, what, what do you think has kept you so busy all these years, and what is your relationship like with the work you've created and the work that you're still looking to create? Mm, good question. I love being on a film set. I, I love it. It's, it's like being in the circus. You know, you, have, you, you pitch your tent. You have all the gags going. You know, we document them. We have a lot of fun. People, you know, are appreciating what you're doing. And then at the end, you pack up the circus. You put it all in the trucks and you drive away and you go to the next town, you know. To me, it's like camp. I love interacting with people. I love having a crew of of people who I care about, who I like to respect, who respect me back. That's critical. There's no assholes on our crews. You know, there just can't be because the job is too hard and the hours are too long. I I love that part of it. Uh, I love creating something that could be good and you never really know, but you do your best in making something that could be good. I, I think the success of continuing to work is, is because uh, of my personality, because I appreciate actors. I try to be kind to people. 
And in spite of having many difficult times on film sets where, you know, you're running out of time, you're, they cut your budget, you don't have the tools, and you're angry that you knew you needed this thing and they didn't give it to you and now you're paying the price for it. And getting to the other side of that and trying to use ingenuity to get around it or do another version of it or whatever, and not losing your cool. Because of that and because of treating people with respect, I think that I've had a long career. It's not an easy thing to do because it requires that you, you check your ego a lot and you remember that it's not just all about the photography and that there are actors there who are sometimes literally and figuratively getting naked in front of the lens and you need to respect that and directors need to respect that. And I tried to do my best to do good work, um, making actors look good, Ladies look good using all the tricks I know, filtration, nets in front of the lens, whatever I do to try to smooth out complexions and fix problems that happen. There's a bunch of beautiful actresses in Hollywood who are appreciative, including my wife. And I love that. I love being able to do something that helps. And the other part of, of what you asked is... Uh, I feel like I've done a lot of cool comedies, and I'm really looking forward to doing more of the dramatic stuff if I can. I'm trying to be a little more picky until, you know, the money runs out. <laughs> <laughs> but I really enjoy it. I enjoy giving uh, more importance to one shot, and it better be good in order to hold the audience's importance. And I'm hoping that uh, people will see after the wedding, and it, it will touch them emotionally, and... Uh, that I get a chance to do it over again. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I really do hope that everyone listening goes to check out After the Wedding. Thank you so much for, oh, for your pleasure. time. Thanks. Thank you. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Julio for taking the time to meet me on the USC campus to record this episode. If you like the podcast, we ask you to please take a moment to subscribe rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Spread the word, as it seriously helps us bring you month after month conversations with new guests. So please, help us out. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. Access.